0: of that because it takes us to the um, final cessation and this is what's mentioned in this sutta contemplating this passion I shall breathe out or breathe in and breathe out contemplating cessation I shall breathe in and breathe out and at the end it says contemplating renunciation I shall breathe in and I shall breathe out it's a little different uh, progression this time but back to dispassion the dispassion of the equanimity has other aspects Um, more profound aspects still it's based on insight it has to be based on insight into the fact that everything that exists is compounded which means that it consists of parts it's not one whole it has different parts which makes it, make it an apparent whole we, feel, we know that about this body That's why we have the instructions to do the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. To see that there are are all different parts which then apparently make a solid whole. The same uh, applies to the mind. And the Buddha used the simile of the cart where we have four wheels and an axle and a floorboard and then a side to the cart and a brake and as we have all these separate parts we call them wheels and axle and brake and floorboards but when we put them together we call it a cart it's the same with a person we have all these bits and pieces liver and intestines and kidneys and heart and so on and when it's all put nicely together then we call it me but we can we know at this time that these things are all bits and pieces all parts and the condition that is necessary for this to be me is the fact that all of the parts are there and that they're all functioning in a certain order over which we have no jurisdiction at all when when it happens in the body that they do not function in the proper order in their proper progression we have to go to hospital and if it happens in the mind we also go to hospital, and not very easy to cure. So we have actually no real jurisdiction over the fact that all these bits and pieces that we consist of function properly, we have no jurisdiction, that they function in their proper order. So we have a condition on which we depend which is unreliable, which we cannot control and because it is a condition that is um, necessary for this to happen the condition itself has to happen first so we are constantly dependent on something whenever this independent self that we presume to be now because all these parts have to be put together and function obviously there's always some part that's liable to disintegration even if not the whole disintegrates, not like death when the whole body disintegrates but some part may disintegrate and that's when the body is no longer something that we are infatuated with but then the body is something that gives us great unhappiness when something has disintegrated in between and because something is disintegrating it needs renewal so we have to look after it to renew it now with the body we can give it medicines. We can actually, there are some certain parts that we can nowadays renew. Take out the old one, put in a new one. Doesn't always work properly, but it has been tried, and in some cases it works very well. Can take out the kidney and put in a new one. Can take out the gallbladder completely. Don't even have to put in a new one. Can take out the appendix; don't have to put in a new one. When these things disintegrate, we can do something like that. We've been tried to put in a new heart; don't know that that works very well. But other bits and pieces, like snip off pieces of the digestive system, sometimes put in uh, pieces of um, wire to keep the hip bone together. All that has been done, and more or less successfully. Now, with our own body, we're always hoping that isn't going to happen. That everything is going to keep on functioning, so we don't have to renew it, so that it doesn't disintegrate to the point where only one of them disintegrates, or two, and that the rest of it then has the aches and pains. We hope that the whole thing disintegrates all at once. I mean, it's hoping against hope. Nobody has any uh, guarantee for any of this but if we want to look at things they constantly have to be renewed brooms wear out and dishes break houses need to be cleaned clothing get holes in them everything that exists is compounded of bits and pieces and there's always something that goes wrong with it clothing is made of fiber or of um, thread, and one piece of thread breaks, so you've got a hole in it. So either you run around with a hole, or you sew it up, or you get a new new piece of cloth. So there's a constant disintegration, which is of course most important to see in ourselves. We don't really care whether we have to buy new things, because we're in the lucky position to be able to buy new things. But that's not all of it that we are able to buy new things. We are constantly busy trying to keep everything in order so that it doesn't completely fall down over our heads. Houses have to be looked after. The the roofs have to be looked after. The floors have to be cleaned. All the internal objects have to be constantly cleaned and repaired. And one goes to the repair shop and then they tell you, oh, we can't fix that, so you have to throw it away. And you have to worry about what you're throwing away because the mountains of rubbish are going to bury us one day. So it has to be recycled, newest addition to our problems. Not that we didn't have enough problems already. So the whole system that we live under and over which we have absolutely no control. There's no way that we can change that system. Just because we recycle ten more bottles, than the next guy doesn't make any difference. The mountain is going to bury us anyway. And the things have to be renewed and cleaned and repaired. This whole system that we live under, we can see it at this stage as totally and utterly and completely unsatisfactory. And that we have absolutely no way of ever making it satisfactory. Now once we've seen that, we have seen the way out of the mundane, worldly condition to the super-mundane. This is what Dukkha means. Dukkha does not mean when our back hurts, or our uh, knees hurt, or when uh, somebody doesn't do what we want them to do, or when we lose our loved ones, or when somebody doesn't appreciate us. That's all, by the way. Dukkha means that we're living in a system which cannot be changed because it is based on the condition of craving to arise, that this system that has existence At its core, can never be satisfactory. And only then do we know what dukkha means. And when we know that, when we know what dukkha means, it doesn't mean that we become unhappy, on the contrary, we become very happy because we've finally seen what it really means and we have finally seen why all this dissatisfaction has been arising in our lives and all these problems and all these difficulties because it cannot be otherwise. Only at that moment do we realize what it actually means to exist. This is why this is the first step into the super mundane world, or super mundane consciousness, I should say. The dispassion, the understanding that nothing can be satisfactory that is based on conditions, that nothing can be satisfactory that is compounded. because it needs a constant repair system a constant cleaning system a constant renewal system and a totally unreliability without any jurisdiction over the basic foundation of how it arose when we see ourselves like that we lose all craving To be here. Then we really know. Only then. Up to then dukkha is either all the things we don't like or lip service or anything in particular that didn't work out but that's not it. Only then have we seen it properly and this is why this step is already beyond the ordinary worldly affairs and worldly steps that we have taken so far. I will explain the whole thing to the end, whether we have got anywhere near that or not doesn't matter. First of all, because of um, the fact that it's mentioned in practically every sutta, it goes all the way from watch your breath to become enlightened. There is even the shortest sutta usually starts with that and ends with that. That's one reason why to go and with the explanation all the way. And also because it is extremely helpful to know what this road map actually aims to show. Whether one has traveled only one little bit or half the way or three-quarters of the way doesn't matter. This is the whole of the road map and as we get to know the whole of the roadmap, at least we know what it's about and we can then make a choice whether we would like to continue with that road map or not because it only leads to one point and it is a matter of making up one's mind whether one wants that kind of roadmap, So what we have is com- compounded things consisting of bits and pieces of which we are the prime example. That's why I have said many times already, please make a zipper in front of your body and take out the bits and pieces. And if you don't do it, still, you can't help but know but if one doesn't do this particular practice one is still trying to hide from the truth the truth is directly opposed to what we would like it to be we have made up our ideas what we would like to have and how we would like things to be the truth is exactly opposite and if we We all know we've got all these bits and pieces, but if we don't like to look at that, that means we're still hiding, hiding from the truth. All right. It's everybody's choice. The Buddha can do no more than explain and show the way. He calls himself the show of the way. So we have compounded things which we can see in the body and also in the mind. And we have the conditions on which all this is based. One of the things that the conditions for the body is the food that we put in the physical food that's one of the conditions and that's a constant shore and a constant bother, the um, the schedule for the cooking is just as important and as long as the schedule for the daily meditation if you compare the two bits of paper you'll see so there we have a condition which is essential for being alive, and it's, it is not only that sure, but it um, has so much time and energy involved. So the compounded has the condition, which is one of them. The, the being has the condition of craving, of course, otherwise he wouldn't be there. And with the mind, we also have the four bits of mind, which I have mentioned many times already, four aggregates of mind to take the mind apart in at least into those four bits one can do it in far more detail by the Abhidhamma system one can take it apart into 89 different mind states if one can remember them all if one can't remember them one can have a schedule it's printed it's a nice printed schedule with 89 mind states one can look at all that and see whether one can actually find them but it's not necessary. Four is enough. And we can see that one is the condition for the next. And what is the basic condition? The basic condition is the sense contact. And what's the condition for the sense contact? The condition for the sense contact is mind and body. For the five senses it's the body. The condition for the body is to get food and craving. So there's always a condition that makes all this arise and since the condition for being there is craving one can see that with that craving that is the condition for all this one doesn't have exactly a peaceful harmonious state ever until that craving is gone and when that... because craving can never bring peace and harmony no matter how subtle it is or how we like to hide behind it and say well this is nothing but um, survival which is necessary, well, it's too craving. So when we, when we see that craving can never bring peace and harmony, then we will certainly make an attempt, if we've got that far in our understanding, that nothing that has all these features can ever bring us the totality that we're looking for. We will then look for that which is other, which is different. That which is other, which is different, will have to have no compounds. it must not have bits and pieces, and it must have no condition. Must be without condition. Now obviously, to find that which has no compounds. No bits and pieces. And to find that which has no condition has to be in the mind. It's impossible to have a body which doesn't have bits and pieces. And it's impossible to have a body which has no conditions to make it keep alive. So we're certainly no longer looking for the perfection in physical, nor are we looking for the renewal of the physical, because we know already that that is always connected with the the conditioned and the compounded with that which brings suffering we don't have, we cannot possibly make sure that this body will be without any suffering the whole of this life there's no way anybody can make sure and it starts right at birth there's plenty of suffering right at birth and not only for the, uh, the mother there's plenty of suffering for the baby so we certainly will have to look for the unconditioned and the uncompounded as mind and not as body it's only logical and makes sense and nobody would do otherwise since we know already what it's like in the meditation to have the conditioned and the compounded all the jhana states are conditioned they all have the condition of concentration and even those which are the non-material jhanas have the condition of concentration and they are compounded because they consist of different parts the mind has to be there to be concentrated the mind has to be there to attain a different level of consciousness and consciousness how is that compounded? consciousness is not one whole it is also arising and ceasing even though it is very subtle it has the same quality in the same Um, aspect of everything else that exists namely the arising and ceasing the coming together of the particle and the falling apart and that consciousness is therefore also compounded and certainly conditioned and we have already by that time completely experienced that with the end even of the highest jhana that too is impermanent, and the state of consciousness achieved in that highest jhana will not last. Although, once consciousness does become much finer and more subtle, because of that it also becomes far more easy to be affected by the lower consciousnesses, and therefore that too is dukkha. So after the jhanas, we have already experienced the dukkha. If we haven't, well, we still have to do that. But we know that they are not the answer to getting out of all Dukkha. And this was actually the reform movement of the Buddha, that he was the one who added that to the existing Brahminical religion, which was quite Uh, aware and able to practice the eight jhanas, that that too resulted in the end in Dukkha because of the fact that it had the condition and the compound. And it can be quite easily seen when one comes out that although one raises oneself to another level of consciousness, it certainly does not sustain the non-self, the totally non-Dukkha aspect. And because one knows that, one looks now for something else. And looking for something else is a deliberate movement of the mind. And in many of the suttas, not in this particular one, it's very short only, but in other suttas, the Buddha over and over says that having attained the first jhana, the mind knows that this is still not satisfactory and therefore drops it and goes to the next one and again and again and again. And here we can, for instance, have, after any of the jhanas, doesn't matter which one, the first one is usually not uh, that um, useful for that, although the Buddha mentions it, but any, after any of the jhanas, the mind knows that too is not totally satisfactory, and I want to find that which is unconditioned and uncompounded. So it's a deliberate movement towards something which is unknown at the time. Naturally, even when one does the jhanas, every new one is unknown. One has to just go. And because the Buddha's instructions are there, we know at least the direction, even if we don't know what it looks like. If we've never been to Paris, we haven't got a clue what it looks like. But because we've got good roadmaps, at least we know how to get there. And one has to make the trip, that's all. And then one finds out whether it looks all right or not. So we have the instruction what to look for. We look for the unconditioned, the uncompounded. Now what is unconditioned and uncompounded? It is that which has no bits and pieces and it's that which is based on no condition whatsoever and therefore is not moving. It's totally still. There's nothing happening at all. Now in order to get to that, there are these two things necessary. One I've already explained, that the mind is understanding that total satisfaction cannot be found in what we've got. That the whole of this uh, situation that we're in is actually totally unsatisfactory and can never be made to be satisfactory. We're always just putting a, like a little colored cloth over it so that it looks better tastes better, smells better sounds better, looks better that's what we're doing all the time but now we have seen through all this uh, mind made uh, arrangement and see that it it still isn't satisfactory no matter how nice we make it look or sound or taste or smell or touch so that's one thing, that we put the mind deliberately towards that which is unconditioned, uncompounded, but the other thing which is necessary at this point because we have understood that this existence that we're in cannot be satisfactory. And therefore, we are willing to give ourselves up. In other words, we have seen ourselves as having made a mistake up to now, that we thought that we could fix it we all have this um, exaggerated idea about our own abilities and when one is young in particular one thinks that particularly the older generation didn't know how to handle anything and we're going to do it right and as uh, one gets older one sees that nobody can do it right So. We no longer have this idea that we're going to fix it, but we understand that the only fixing that can ever be done is by completely letting go of any hanging on to being here to be. In other words, the craving to be is removed for the simple reason that one has seen that that is the cause of Dukkha nothing else only that is the cause of Dukkha now of course that is uh, disguised under many other wishes and desires which cause Dukkha but the basic cause for Dukkha is our desire to be and that is understood at that time because this is already a super mundane step for dispassion. and as we understand it at that time that we don't really want to crave to be we are willing to let go to let go of this person whom we up to then thought was somebody namely me and we now see that that's a total misconception which is it's only a word which we have to use in our worldly language in order to make ourselves understood but it is not a reality which we have, we have imbued this word with the reality, and because of that reality that we have put into that word, we have had no end of problems. Sometimes we don't notice them because we have diverted our attention to our pleasant sense contacts, but other times when the pleasant sense contacts are not so plentiful, then we can notice it all again very nicely and quite easily. This is a moment of great relief already. When one sees where all this unsatisfactoriness unsatisfactoriness actually came from. It wasn't because we did something wrong. It wasn't at all. Nobody did anything wrong. The only thing we ever did wrong was that we were craving to be in the last life so we're here again and we're again craving to be. But when we come to that point and give that up we have these two factors which make it possible to get to the unconditioned the factor of understanding that the craving to be is a total aberration of the mind because there's nobody here anyway the whole thing is only a process of arising and ceasing based on compounds and conditions never satisfactory because there's no jurisdiction over it, never reliable and always prone to disaster because of disintegration, and therefore always needs renewal and needs looking after. That's the one thing. And the other thing is that because of that, we are looking for that which doesn't have bits and pieces, no compounds in it. It's one whole. But because we understand already that craving to be, which makes me exist, we know that it has to be without me. And the mind at this time is strong, is strong and concentrated, so that it can actually go like an arrow shot from a sling. And this is usually best done after the med, after the jhana. But it can be done at any time. A mind which has practiced the jhanas for some time is a mind that is concentrated and one-pointed. Otherwise, it can't practice it. And having been concentrated on one-pointed, it can be sh- shot like an arrow toward that point. Now, that point I call the still point. And it is a point which in the um, uh, scriptures is often called the non-occurrence. Now, when you read the word non-occurrence, you might, you know, start thinking, now what could that possibly mean? The non-occurrence means nothing's happening. But it also means it includes both actually. It includes that we don't we look for something which has no compounds, so nothing's happening. But we also it also means that we recognise already that we do not have to occur. We ourselves, we don't have to, because there is no ourselves. Alighting on non occurrence it's a still point. It's a moment, it's one moment, a past moment, where the mind does not move, where it has no observer, and therefore one can't say that it's this or that, there's no observer. But the mind is fully aware and awake in that moment of complete and total concentration but that to complete and con- total concentration doesn't have anything that it's concentrating on it's just that the mind is just unmoving for one moment and at that one moment arises because of the willingness to shed all the extraneous ideas that we have about ourselves in the world and get to the point of and the unconditioned get to that point which is the foundation now we can call that something different we can say that we're willing to give ourselves up to return to the ground of being out of which everything arises because of craving to the matrix of existence that we return to that which doesn't have any individuality from which nothing can be described because there's nobody there to describe it from which it arises so that is what the mind is looking for it can experience that through the concentrated mind mind pinpointed like an arrow and it is the next moment which is called the fruit moment which explains it and the fruit moment is a moment of feeling and this feeling is one of enormous relief and release. The mind actually does say, it sometimes laughs a little about its own stupidity, that it took so long to get there. It also sometimes says that, of course, that has, that's what it is. But the main feeling is one of having shed an enormous burden. And with the shedding of that burden, there can be an internal laughter. It's not an outside laughter. It can be an internal laughter because of of a feeling of a great um, lightness and this relief inside. The fruit moment is two moments, two mind moments which are primarily the feelings. But after that comes a longer period. Two things that happen after that. The first thing that happens is that if one has the right outer conditions, like the Buddha had at his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree, he was able to stay there for seven days in the bliss of Nibbana, which meant that he continued in the state of the fruit moment, not to the same extent that it would have been initially, but enjoying the result, that relief. Naturally, he had a very good situation there. Nobody bothered him, one should imagine. But then also, after that, comes the reviewing. Now for an Arahant, a fully enlightened one, as the Buddha was, there would be no reviewing. There's only knowing. But for the first time when this happens, that's called stream entry. And it's called, the person who's done that is called a stream entry. That person needs to review. Needs to review whether anything has changed within because that is a proof of the pudding and the proof has to be made by each person by him or herself the onus of the proof lies on the one who has taken the step it is uh, one can discuss it naturally with the teacher and A teacher would be able to say whether that was a proper um, step taken or not, but all the previous experiences would have to be known also to the teacher so to ascertain the whole pathway, and it's up to the person, him or herself. Just like the Buddha said when he was enlightened, I am the Buddha. And he actually calls the earth to witness because there was nobody to witness it for him. So when he puts, when we see the hand mudra of the hand touching the ground, that's calling the earth to witness. The stream entry, which is what we're concerned with, although it is theoretically possible to have all four steps in one sitting it is very very rare it is highly unlikely and in this day and age one wouldn't think that that would happen we're living in a age of technology and not in an age of spirituality and so the consciousness which is around us is imbued with that kind of materiality and not with that kind of spirituality so if we can make any headway on the spiritual path it is only due to the fact of the good karma we've made in the past the stream-enter who has that experience for the first time will feel this relief very strongly the first two mind moments the food moments, which are the first two mind moments and lesser relief and release as time goes on maybe quite a lot still in the first week and then lesser but the reviewing knowledge should then start immediately and the reviewing means that one has a look to see has anything changed within me now it may take a few days till one actually becomes aware of that depending on the strength of one's mindfulness. One may notice it immediately, but that's unlikely. One may notice it half an hour later or half a day later. And what the biggest change that happens for the stream mantra is that the wrong view of self is eliminated. Now, I mentioned that already with wrong and right view, but I will mention it here again, because it wouldn't be complete without it. The stream entrer never again will think of him or herself, think mind you, as an individual, but will still feel it for until the time of non return. And even then, it's still very subtly embedded, but so subtle that it's very different. The feeling that was happening in the food moment of having relief and release is not steady because this is only a first-time experience and and it's such a turnabout from what this particular mind has been doing for the past hundreds or thousands of lifetimes. Naturally, the wrong view of self has been so strongly embedded that the turnabout cannot immediately erase that. But... The understanding is erased. The understanding of the wrong view of self is totally erased, but the feeling is not. So a person who has done had that stream entry knows forever after that everybody is thinking of him or herself in the wrong way, including oneself, and knows forever after that there is only mind and body with nobody within, sitting inside. Now, in order to resurrect the feeling that came about in the fruit moment, person who has done that needs to resurrect that deliberately as often as possible in order to get to the second step, and also in order to have the actual results of this very important and enormous step into the noble path. The person who has done the stream entry is from then on in the Buddhist uh, Terminology called the Noble One. Until then, one is a worldling, a After that, an Aryan. Naturally, nobody addresses one like that. But that's what is the distinction is in the Buddha Sutra. The other things which are eliminated are skeptical doubt. That's completely eliminated because one has. Uh, proven oneself that the Buddha's instructions are correct and that there is such a thing as non-self and that there is such a thing as enlightenment moment so there's no doubt at all and one no longer believes in rites and rituals I've talked about that already when we're talking about right view a person who has had entry is never again able to break any of the five precepts because of the fact that the wrong view of self has been eliminated. It is also said that a person who has done entry by following the Buddha's instructions will never be able to take another teacher, always the Buddha, until enlightenment. And then, of course, then the person is no longer called A hearer, because for an enlightened one, there's nothing to hear anymore. Up to then, the disciple is called a hearer, one who hears. So then there's no teaching necessary anymore for anyone at that stage. But this is the stream entry, the first step. The simile which is given, and which uh, a number of you have heard already, but I will uh, use it again, given in the... um, commentary is that most uh, all the worldlings are on this side on this bank of the river and many of them do go to the um, bank of the river and look down into the river and would like to cross the river to the other side where there is no suffering but are afraid because of the strong current in the river in that case which is a different simile actually in this case the Dhamma is called the raft which can take us across the strong current of this river to the other side but the simile which is given for the stream entry moment and for all all Nibbana moments after that the other three is that there is a big tree a strong tree growing on this side of the river which has a branch hanging out over the river, and there's a rope attached to that branch. And the branch is the, uh, the simile for the materiality of the, the body, and the rope, the idea of self. And because of the momentum of practice, one grabs the hold of this rope and can swing far enough and strongly enough across the river and fall down on the other side, tending and inclining the body, or the mind, towards the other side, and then falling down on the other shore. First, of course, because one has never done this before, one is not very steady on one's feet and one wobbles but soon one gets one's bearings now it means quite obviously then one lets go of body and mind one lets go of the selfhood which is this rope that one is hanging on to and the rope is attached to the branch which is the corporality the body which is me and letting go of both of them to fall down on the other side. However, but what it actually means in uh, practical terms of the uh, past moment is that there's absolutely no clinging to the five aggregates, one being the body, the other for the mind. Now, we don't cling to aggregates, because it's a word we don't even know about. I mean, until we hear about the Buddha's teaching, we never use the word. But what we cling to is the idea of me. And we wouldn't mind swinging across on this, on this rope and getting on to the other side, if me could be then on the other side and be forever after happy. But it just isn't possible to do that. Me can't do that. Me's got to let go of me completely in order to get across. So it is a very strong feeling. It's an action which takes place not in a thought process which is all I can use for the explanation not a thought process this is just a picture and visualization of it not at all a thought process it has to be a deliberate feeling process that there's no need to hang on to this mistaken view because one has seen it for what it is a complete aberration of the mind which brings about all the other aberrations of the mind, including war and torture and uh, killing and raping and all the rest of the operations of the mind. And all our unhappinesses and neurotic behavior, every bit of it is brought about by this aberration of the mind, that there is an individual there which has to have this, that or the other, and not have this and that. So, that kind of insight gives rise to that deliberate and fully conscious endeavor to completely let go and no longer be. Because craving to be is the cause for the whole mess. So, no longer craving to be to be. No longer be. And when one doesn't want to be anymore that includes also not to crave not to be but to just let go of the whole thing. And as one lets go one recognizes the fact that body and mind are the same as before but there's no longer that inner core which up to now has been whispering and sometimes yelling, look at me, this is me, I'm going to do this or that. That's gone. Mind and body are the same as before. No difference. And very few people have a halo to pronounce that they've actually done that. So, the way to be able to get across, which is just a manner of speaking, because there's nowhere to go, but it's a manner of speaking, we have to use the ordinary language in order to make ourselves understood, and as you remember, it was mentioned in the Sutta, that the Buddha used ordinary language without misapprehension, without misunderstanding. If we want to get across, it means that we let go of all these ideas that we have about ourselves and let go of this clinging to ourselves and the craving to be. And then having done that, one can lightly swing across because the heaviness is gone, and one can swing across and drop down on the other side, which is all just similes and analogies, and not any reality uh, imbued in that. One doesn't swing, one doesn't get anywhere, one is just in the same spot one always has been, except inside it looks different. This is the first step then on the path, on the noble path, of the Enlightenment um, con- enlightened consciousness, and this tree mentor who's done it once, has the right understanding, and sometimes the right feeling, but often not. And But because such a person has known what it feels like to be without this selfhood, cannot be deterred from the past must finish. Even if the mind revolts sometimes and says, oh, too difficult, can't be done, or something like that. Cannot be deterred, because it, that mind knows what it's like. And it's also said that a stream enter uh, has seven more lives until enlightenment, but of course it can be done all in one lifetime. It doesn't have to have seven more lives. And if the determination is strong enough, And the Dukkha understanding is great enough such a person will try not to have seven more lives because one knows exactly that none of those lives are going to produce anything other than more Dukkha. And a few nice sense contacts, of course. Now that was the dispassion which is followed according to the Sutta by cessation, and um, here the cessation, the cessation of the me um, idea, the cessation of this selfhood idea, and then mentioned here is the renunciation at the end, but the renunciation at the end this is unusual, because uh, usually one has to pronounce a little earlier than that, the... Uh, Renunciation at, uh, at the end here is an indication of the result. Excuse me. <coughs> the renunciation is a result of this experience and renunciation means that obviously one no longer expects (coughs) no longer expects uh, results from senses no longer expects the um, existence to bring about human existence at this stage to bring about satisfaction so one has renounced all that this is nothing but the result of that which has gone before A free mantra still believes even if it's only very subtle and in a subconscious way that other realms of existence may bring what one is actually looking for namely peace, happiness and harmony because especially if if one has done the jhanas where different levels of consciousness are experienced so that in which there is happiness and peacefulness so that this brings about the idea that if one could stay in those states of consciousness attain to a uh, mind state in that consciousness which will not fall back to the human state, that then one has done everything that one wants to do. This goes on until Arahanship. Even the non-returner still believes that and still thinks that it would be nice to be in that state of consciousness and not come out again. That's why he's called a non-returner and has to come uh, go back to the or come to the uh, highest states of consciousness, the Brahma realms, to finish off. So this is a, the, this is one of the fetters which is left. The uh, stream mentor has discarded three fetters, but we've got ten. And up to the non-returner, we only discard five, half of it. So the Arahant has to do half of the work which the other three steps only did half of the work. And yet, it is rare enough even to have stream entry. Never mind more than that. So, and that it's only half the work. Maybe I'll ta- talk about these fetters um, another time. Of course, there too many different things involved again. I'll talk about them and delineate them again in uh, in exact detail. All of this in this particular sutta is combined with the breath, which is an unusual way of expre- of expressing it, because usually we find that after having become concentrated on the breath we let go of that and do whatever is the next step. But here, there is a combination mentioned. And I'll just read that out once more. It's an unusual way of expressing it because it's not usually put that way. Contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe in. Contemplating impermanence, I shall breathe out. So obviously what is said here is that even while contemplating the impermanence the in-breath is noted and the out-breath is noted which is very important because otherwise one doesn't know the impermanence of the breath so that's quite logical and has to be that way but then contemplating dispassion I shall breathe in contemplating dispassion I shall breathe out now the uh, disenchantment is left out of course right to dispassion but again, we can use that quite clearly when we see that if we are dispassionate towards our own existence, are ready to give up this craving to be, we can cha- uh, gauge that at our, to our attachment to the breath. The breath is life. So as long as we want this, and obviously everybody who is not enlightened wants that, there is the, there is not the total giving up and craving of wanting to be. So we can see whether we have complete and total equanimity towards this breath or whether there is still a passion involved for survival and we can contemplate this passion with this breathing as part of it. The same goes on then. Contemplating cessation I shall breathe in, contemplating cessation I shall breathe out. Well, again, cessation means, of course, that we are ready to give ourselves up completely. So here, we're breathing. How much importance do we attach to it? How much craving is there? So this is a contemplation which is being uh, offered as an inside method, gauged on the breath itself which can be extremely helpful and useful. And then again, the same thing about renunciation. How much have I actually seen the sense contacts and sense pleasures as being false and not satisfying? How much of it can I renounce while I'm in this state of calm breathing because there can also be a pleasant sensation arising when the calmness has already been established so how much of it, how attached am I to that very useful to use that as an alternative in the contemplation by using the breath actually as one's gauge for that contemplation Thus cultivated, thus made much of, the concentration on in and out breathing is of great fruit, of great profit. Footnote there, excuse me. I don't agree with the (laughs) footnote. Okay that's the pathway but we will have ha- more uh, on this in and out breathing which we'll have tomorrow have questions this is time to t- time to ask them so with the in and out breathing uh, for example you can see uh, how much passion there is still left, or mm-hmm. yeah. yes. How important it is to be here. Yeah. It's very, very uh, can be very helpful because the breath means how life. The passion yeah, to be here. that's right. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I'm sure the Buddha had some excellent ideas. Else. I thought there were 13 steps of the desire for deliverance is number 9 and then 10, dispassion desire for deliverance next one is disenchantment okay, disenchantment, dispassion and then I've got here compounded, compounded condition non-clinging and I don't find renunciation here no, it's not yes. there not always explained in the same way. Mm. This renunciation this is actually, the last one is reviewing knowledge, not renunciation. Mm. Right. But in this particular sutta, the Buddha said renunciation. Uh-huh. But usually the last one is reviewing knowledge. But that, that's true. The, the non-clinging and compounded condition are also steps. The what? The non-clinging and the compounded... No, the, uh, the, unders- that's all one thing. Mm. So, how many steps are there? Sometimes nine, sometimes seven, sometimes thirteen, yeah. which, whichever whichever one you look at. Mm. How many did you get this time? Yeah, this time. Did you number? No, this time I didn't count, but I was just comparing. Uh uh-huh. mm. But the last one is usually reviewing knowledge. Mm-hmm. But here it's not his renunciation as a result. I mean, he talked to different people about the same subject. So it didn't always come out the same mm-hmm. when the Buddha talked, you know. So sometimes he felt one thing was more important, another time another thing. That's why the suttas are always full of life where the commentary is always dead because they repeat the same thing over and over and over and over. You know. Anything else? Just questions. question. Um, one teacher I heard talking once said that if you're not ready when you experience the past moment, it could be very disturbing. Yeah, I'll I'll tell you how it really is. If you're not ready you won't experience it. Sense of course. Common sense is an absolute necessary ingredient for the spiritual path. I mean I can see where if, if you're not in a the right state of mind watching things dissolve around, you can be terrifying. Mm. But now to think that the terror and it couldn't be terrifying could it? it doesn't happen it doesn't if you're not ready. That past movement has been also compared to a ripe apple falling off a tree. Now you can stand under that apple tree and beg it and pray to it and give it offerings and say, Look, apple tree, I have to have an apple today. Please let one drop and the apple tree will not comply unless it's ready. The apple is ripe. It's just not going to let it drop. So it's the same thing with with the past movement. a lot of funny things are being said and we are living in a non-spiritual age so we hear a lot of things which one can say, well, what is that? it's not, not an age of spirituality that we live in it Might it might swing again, it's like pendulum but isn't there the danger that you... Uh it is an excuse uh, for the for the point where you have to make the decision to go mm. further, and then you say, you know, I'm not,
1: it's really? not
0: I'm not right. Yeah, of course. But if you say that you're not, if one says that one isn't, you know, the mind has to be convinced without a shadow of a doubt that the only way to get rid of dukkha is to do this, and therefore it will. Now, even when it's ready and willing, it may not, because there's still that little bit of pull towards the selfhood. But if the mind isn't isn't completely ready and willing, it's not going to do it anyway. And even if it's intellectually agreeing, if it doesn't have the heart moment to push it across, it's not happening. Because there are many many people who can intellectualise this. There's read enough books. And, you know. yes. Um, is there sort of any control? Well, maybe all these happening sort of for now, that you let your control. Or is it not a control of What, the past moment? Yeah. Well, you've got to have all the ingredients there. You've got to have everything on hand. It doesn't come like a bolt out of the sky. You have to have done all the work and be perfectly willing and ready for it. But it's not accidental. There is nothing accidental anywhere in this universe. But then our mind, like now, must know that there is something like Nibbana. Does it? Does your mind know there is something like Nibbana? Well, why try it? Well, does it? Does your mind know? No, or yes? No. No, okay. So why try? What conclusion do you come to? Oh. Contemplate. Try to find the answers. Everybody carries every answer within. Everybody does. If we didn't, there wouldn't be a hope of enlightenment. Nobody does anything for anybody. The only thing that the Buddha did was he gave very clear and precise instructions. But then if one doesn't follow them, that's the end of that one. And we have all the answers within. But they are overshadowed and overlaid by the greed and the hate of the self, the desires and the cravings, and all the opinions and viewpoints that one has embedded in the mind so one has to get rid of all that sort of drop it let it go until one can get at the precious jewel of the mind and there the answers are all there now obviously one has a chance to find out more if one reads the Buddhist discourses or gets them explained but only One only understands as much as there is already purity in the mind. Because that's all that one can take in. It's impossible to superimpose something on top of it which isn't already there. Yes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you explain what the difference is between the, the, the higher realms clinging to those and the Libyanic experiences? Yes. Um, clinging of higher realms as such there is the idea in the mind or the feeling I am now in the higher realms, even though that's so subtle that I, in that higher state of consciousness, that it may not be possible to verbalize it like that. But the feeling is still there. The higher realms, the highest are the four Brahma realms, and uh, Brahma is God, the four God realms, and they are still, the Buddha said, imbued with the idea that they are omniscient, omnipresent, um, everlasting. So, there's something there that can be omniscient, omnipresent, everlasting, and this is the the higher states of consciousness that we can cling to because they're very nice, they're very pleasant, and we're in them, even though we may feel, and probably do, that we are part of the whole. But this, or the whole, is part of us. But there's still that last little bit, which the Buddha described as the scent of clinging to the flower the aroma of a flower clinging, how it clings to the flower and uh, the bliss uh, of Nibbana is a total loss, complete and absolute and total loss of any such subtle identification system nothing, no, no absolutely nothing There's nobody there. There's just mind and body still alive and at complete rest and peace and uh, without any wishes, without any ideas of what could be, just being there while the body is still there. And that's extremely blissful because of the fact that it doesn't have to be um, a jhana state. It doesn't have to be a meditative state. It's just a blissful state of being completely without burden nobody there to carry a burden I think that's about the best I can do on that one mm-hmm. yeah, nothing mm. else right, um profound subject which really goes to the heart uh, of the whole of the teaching to the last and final um, result of the teaching the last and final experience of the teaching so it is actually much better uh, to do it rather than to discuss it but because of that because of the suttas being always explanatory of the whole pathway, uh, it is necessary to add that to it. But the main thing is not to try and uh, um, think ahead, but do what is present now, but to always know that the final result, the complete and utter removal of all dukkha, Because there's nobody there to have the Dukkha. It's not because Dukkha doesn't exist anymore. Dukkha remains. But there's nobody there to have it. I think that might... Please put the attention on the breath for a few moments. your heart with gratitude for all the good things you have experienced in this life gratitude for the opportunity to practice gratitude to your parents your teachers, gratitude to all beings who have helped you. Fill yourself with gratitude. Experience it as an overflowing heart. Filling you with joy from head to toe. Now, think of any one person towards whom you have particularly a reason to be grateful. Now, think of that person, visualize that person as you can, and then let the gratitude from your heart overflow into that person filling him with her. Think of any one person whom you have found particularly difficult in the past or in the present and experience gratitude to that person for having given you the opportunity for unconditional love let the gratitude overflow from your heart into that person think of your friends, visualize them, if you like or can, sitting in front of you, and let gratitude fill you and overflow to them for the fact that they are your friends. Think of all the people who are helpful to you in your daily life. People in the shops when you want to buy something, postman who brings your mail. the farmer who grows your food the workers who repair the roads to travel on who sew our clothes think of anything anyone who supports your life and let gratitude overflow from your heart to them and think of your teachers who have taught you different skills in school or later and be grateful Fill them with your gratitude grateful to your parents for having given you life the opportunity to practice let this gratitude be quite overwhelming filling them with it